So th this talk is about this concept of Sentinel device that uh, we developed with uh, Andy Lakoff in a special issue of uh, LIM, <laughs> at the journal LIM, and that uh, is really a connection between the anthropology of uh, biosecurity um, uh, in discussion on the rationality of risk and the anthropology of uh, human-animal relationship that follows a more classical line of uh, Levi-Straussian structural uh, uh, anthropology. Um, so in 1978, uh, after the success of the global campaign of vaccination against uh, smallpox, the WHO announced that the fight against uh, infectious disease was over. It soon appeared that this promise was overdue. Uh, new infectious diseases have uh, emerged, such as the pandemic of HIV-AIDS, but also more punctual and sever severe outbreaks such as uh, Ebola, Nipah, or SARS. The success of the smallpox vaccination campaign was uh, due to the fact that the smallpox virus was passing from humans to humans, while there are only few transmissions of monkeypox or chickenpox to humans. On the contrary, new infectious diseases emerge from uh, animal reservoirs, such as HIV-AIDS and Ebola coming from uh, African monkeys, Nipah and SARS from South Asian bats, and it is estimated that 75% uh, of emerging infectious diseases come from mutations of pathogens in animal reservoirs, while others come from the resistance developed by pathogens to antibiotics or re-emergence of older pathogens due to poor health system. Monkeys are significant modes of transmission due to their phylogenic proximity with humans, but bats probably constitute the most important reservoir for viruses because of their biological diversity. The emergence of new infectious diseases is not only a blow to modern dreams of control of nature, it also expresses transformation in the relations between humans and animals. While the animal origins of HIV-AIDS remain in the objects of controversies, but are certainly linked to the history of human-animal relationships in 20th century Africa, it is clear that uh, Ebola or Nipah would not have spread from the forest to villages if deforestation had not pushed monkeys and bats close to human habitats. Dengue is a classical example of the effects of climate change, as the vectors of this infectious disease, endemic in Africa and Asia, Aedes aegypti, have moved to South America and are now at the borders of US and Europe. This change in the nature of diseases and in man's relation to nature as measured by diseases has caused a change in public policy. The weapons designed after the microbiological revolution of the turn of the 20th century, vaccines, antivirals, antibodies, could be used for a pathogen whose behavior was already known. On the basis of immunology as a knowledge of the defense of the human body against what comes from outside. But if the frontiers between humanity and nature change constantly, classical weapons have to be reframed. The objective of eradicating infectious diseases has been replaced by strategies for anticipating epidemics. Since pathogens emerge constantly in humans from the animal reservoir, and since the human population is not immune to these pathogens, it is necessary to mitigate the effects of these pathogens when they emerge. A new rationality has consequently been applied in public health. Consi considering the emergence of a new pathogen from the animal reservoir as an event with low probability but catastrophic consequences to which humans must be prepared. The shift from prevention to preparedness can also be described as a shift from risk to catastrophe. The vocabulary of preparedness comes from the world of civil defense and, tr and was transferred to natural disasters and public health. 
since it is impossible to predict when and where a new pathogen will emerge, it is better to prepare for it as if it was already there. Such a rationality entails a collective work of the imagination to emerge in a world where the catastrophic event has already happened, so that humans build competencies to react in the real world. Simulations of epidemics don't rely only on mathematical models, but also on desktop exercises or real ground drills that confront decision makers, hospital staff, and fake patients. Preparing for future epidemics also changes the pharmaceutical management. Vaccines cannot be manufactured as long as the new pathogen has not emerged, but pharmaceutical companies need to be ready to make vaccines in very short time. They must consequently select the pathogens for which they develop backbone models ready to insert the pathogen once it emerges. They pass contract with national states under constrained condition who stockpile antivirals and antibiotics to answer the needs of their population in case of an epidemic. Such national strategies raise tensions between the countries where pathogens emerge, often in the south, and countries who have the means to develop the tools against them, often in the north. Global biobanks, based on mutual exchange, are often designed as an ideal solution, but are complicated to build. So these two techniques of preparedness, simulation by worst-case scenario, and stockpiling of medicine raise fascinating issues on the management of uncertainty in the, concept, in the context of emerging infectious diseases. And I will come back to it in the final part of this talk. However, in this talk, I will focus on a third technique that I call sentinel devices. These are techniques to anticipate the emergence of pathogens by an attentive surveillance of its mutations in the animal reservoir. <coughs> The model for this technique can be found in the work done at the Hong Kong University Department of Microbiology, where I did my fieldwork. After uh, successfully identifying the coronavirus for SARS, uh, the, so this is uh, uh, the position of Hong Kong as uh, the place where the H5N1 virus emerged in 1997. Uh, and, and, and so I studied the, the mobilization of the de Department of Microbiology uh, in, in these last uh, 15 years. Uh, so after identifying the coronavirus for SARS and its animal origins in South Chinese bats, these researchers published an article which concluded the studies on the ecology of influenza led in Hong Kong in the 1970s in which Hong Kong acted as a sentinel post for influenza indicated that it was possible for the first time to do preparedness for flu at the avian level. And all my work was to understand what it meant to do preparedness at the avian level. So that is how it changed the relations between humans and, and birds. Doing preparedness for flu at the avian level meant tracking the flu virus in the animal reservoir to anticipate potential pandemic viruses and send early warning signals of the emergence. This technique is very similar to what is called syndromic surveillance, based on the collection of data on the increase of demand for flu treatment. But while syndromic surveillance requires the coordination of networks of physicians, avian flu preparedness requires a coordination between networks of specialists of birds, both wild and domestic. In the 1950s, the regular emergence of pandemic flu viruses in the, in the 20th centuries, 1918, 1957, 1968, 
was explained by the fact that flu viruses mutate in wild birds, particularly waterfowl, and are transmitted to humans by the mixing vessel of pigs who combine receptors for humans and bird viruses in their respiratory tract. Pandemics occur when flu viruses mutate or reassort in the animal reservoir and replace seasonal viruses in the human population. This ecology of influenza was particularly salient in South China, where pigs and ducks, considered as same carriers, live close to humans in rice paddies. The increase of intensive poultry farmers, farming, where genetic homogeneity enhances the spread of pathogens, combined with the persistence of live poultry markets, where humans are at risk of close transmission, have led to consider South China as a potential site for the next pandemic, what the founder of the Department of Microbiology at Hong Kong University, Kennedy Shortridge, called an influenza epicenter. So considering Hong Kong as a sentinel post for avian flu was a way to transform this vulnerability into an asset. Birds and Hong Kong, birds of Hong Kong, both wild and domestic, should be equipped by microbiologists in such a way that they would warn the world of future pandemics and react literally as global whistleblowers. And I was interested to see how uh, the Hong Kong territory was considered as sentinel in the same way as some birds are considered as sentinels in a farm uh, because they are not vaccinated uh, and they die first in the uh, presence of the virus in the farm. And the, the Chinese word for that is xiaobingji, which means chickens that whistle like soldiers. Uh, so there is this kind of identification of humans with animals in the fact that they raise alert on the global level. And there is also a, a whole discourse of sentinels uh, in the immune system, which are the, the cells that uh, are on the first line of defense of the immune system and go to the pathogens to catch its information and bring it to the rest of the immune system. So these are like three layers, uh, three, three different levels uh, of uh, uh, sentinel behavior, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the human body, uh, the, the farm, and the territory in, in, the, in the global space. I must add that um, uh, I, I use uh, the vocabulary of Philippe Descola to look at the ontology of sentinel devices. Uh, and this is a, a wider project uh, on how in different societies uh, uh, humans uh, uh, conceive of themselves as sentinel in relation to animals uh, uh, through different conceptions of interiority and physicality. Uh, and uh, in the work I've done in Hong Kong, I've uh, looked at the different um, uh, actors who have to deal with uh, animals uh, depending on whether the, the, the bird is considered as a living being or as a, a, a commodity uh, and I, uh, uh, I I use the, the concept of Philippe Descola uh, to show that animism is closer to uh, considering birds as, as a living being and naturalism uh, uh, considering birds as um, a commodity and so I, I place microbiologists in, in the middle part of this framework uh, as those who do uh, uh, the intermediary work uh, to connect this uh, two contradictory perception of a sick bird. So uh, a lot of my reflection is uh, the different perception of what is a sick bird and how it, it, uh, it, 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 it is catalyzed in the moment of massive culling of birds, but it also uh, um, uh, infuses a daily relation to, to birds.
Um, in this talk, uh, I want to uh, look at more particularly at two groups, uh, which are the microbiologists who uh, simulate the uh, mutations of viruses uh, in the labs, and bird watchers who follow the migrations of birds in the territory. And I, I, I compare these two groups as sentinels. Um, uh, and uh, to do that, I, uh, I use the concept of uh, synergetic power, that is, uh, their common relation to hunting practices. So it is often argued that emerging infectious diseases mark a historical shift that can be compared to the Neolithic Revolution. Humans have lived for centuries with species they have learned to domesticate, and they have developed co-immunity with the microbes carried by these animals. But with the livestock revolution, by which is meant the increase of the number of animals domesticated for their meat, along with other environmental changes, the relations between humans and animals have been transformed in such a radical way that microbes coming from animals kill human organisms instead of replicating within them. We will then be in a similar position to hunter-gatherer societies faced with the animals with which we have to communicate through invisible entities. This idea is strikingly caught in sentences like nature strikes back or nature is the greatest bioterrorist threat, regularly used by experts in emerging infectious diseases. I don't want to discuss the epochal value of this kind of statement since I am not a historian of the environment. As an anthropologist, I will rather take it as exemplifying a new rationality of uncertainty. What does the idea that microbiologists are hunters communicating with a natural enemy tell us about their management of uncertainty? How in particular does it distinguish their work from risk management? Can the anthropology of hunting shed light on the management of uncertainty? The metaphor of virus hunters is often used to suggest that microbiologists go into the wild to capture dangerous specimens from animal species. I want to take it seriously as describing a form of rationality dealing with uncertainty in a way that differs from pastoral rationalities of risk. This implies confronting the anthropology of risk with the anthropology of nature. What does the way societies think about nature tell us about the way they frame risk? Michel Foucault has shown that the vocabulary of risk comes from a pastoral practice, counting the numbers of individuals in a population. In the 18th century, episodics were occasions to count the number of casualties in the flock and anticipate the consequences of future outbreaks. Vaccination used an animal disease, cowpox, to produce immunity for human disease, smallpox. The idea that there was a species barrier between cows and humans was a guarantee that the disease would be attenuated when the vaccine would be distributed. Veterinarians and physicians could collaborate on a shared knowledge of species barriers as a distinctive milieu of actual event. But if species barriers are constantly crossed by pathogens, it becomes necessary to govern through time rather than around a specific milieu. Microbiologists now anticipate the crossing of species barriers as a virtual event. The barrier has become a framework a critical site of inquiry. In the framework of Mary Douglas, pathogens crossing species barriers are perceived as dangerous because they are at the borders of well-defined categories. If the management of uncertainty consists in putting new beings in a category, uncertainty is the beginning of a process of inquiry for accountability. 
In her book uh, with Aaron Vildavsky, Risk and Culture, Mary Douglas argues that the calculation of risk is only an extension of this primitive mode of reasoning through long list of cases. Mary Douglas takes the position of Émile Durkheim against Lucien Lévy-Brulle. Our modern ways of thinking are framed by institutions, that is, collective ways to answer uncertainties faced by primitive mentality. In sacrifice, says Durkheim, there is a primitive form of reduction of uncertainty by drawing a line between humans and animals at the moment when they are identified. Opposing Durkheim to Lévy-Brulle draws a sharp distinction between emotion and reason, between danger and risk, which fails to convey the multiple practices of uncertainty. Claude Lévi-Strauss has noticed that in the debate between Durkheim and Lévi-Brulle, Henry Bergson had invented an interesting position which can shed light on the discussion of uncertainty. Bergson takes the example of the hunter who anticipates the outcome of the hunt by invoking the spirit of the prey. It is neither a space of confusion between humans and animals, à la Lévi-Brulle, the hunter doesn't fear the prey, nor is it a space of collective representations à la Durkheim, which would cover the uncertainties of hunting. Collective representations, say Bergson, lead to think that catching the prey was possible once the hunt is finished. But it is better to describe hunting as opening a virtual space between intentions and outcomes, where the hunter communicates with the prey through rituals and narratives, what Bergson calls a virtual instinct and Lévi-Strauss symbolic function. The prey is equipped in such a way that the uncertainty of its interactions opens a space of signaling and communication. Lévi-Strauss thus showed that the uncertainties in the behavior of animals allow them to express many traits of human societies. When some possibilities of communication are exhausted, it is possible to find other traits in animals' behavior to express other relations. So in the management of emerging infectious diseases, the position of Lévi-Brulle is clearly illustrated by images in the media where uncertainties about animal diseases are represented as mad cows or terrorist birds, as contradictory as the famous boros are avaras, which connects uh, Indian uh, tribes with uh, paraquet birds. Durkheim's theory by is illustrated by the politics of public health, uh, when a sacrifice is necessary to blame the food industry for turning animals into monsters. But Bergson's concept allowed to analyze the work of virus hunters at the level of uncertainties where animals are equipped through sentinel devices. Sentinel devices give access to meaningful sites in the environment in an intermediary level between emotions and representations. These uh, Bergsonian uh, conceptions have been confirmed by recent analysis of hunting societies. Philippe Descola recalls that animistic hunters are trapped between the identification with the animals they hunt and the necessity to kill them without the institution of sacrifice to operate this cut. Tim Ingold has described the difference between hunting societies and pastoral societies in the way they perceive the environment, as lines that must be followed and intertwined for the first, as lands that must be measured and counted for the second. Roberta Maillon has showed that shamanistic rituals in Mongolia simulate the movement of animals to prepare for the uncertain encounter with them. Since hunting is an uncertain practice, it is better not to boast how many animals have been hunted 
and to turn to experts who will produce signs of the outcome of the hunt to increase the strength of the hunter. Hence the fundamental role of playing in the rituals that precede hunting. It has often been stressed that techniques of preparedness, so simulations, stockpiling, sentinels, have a fictional dimension, suggesting they are concerned with unreal problems by opposition with real problems such as malaria, whose risk is known. I suggest that these techniques are concerned by the same problem as those faced by hunting societies, which I call uh, synergetic powers. So I, f I will follow this hypothesis by looking at how virologists and birdwatchers act as critical actors in regard to governments who sacrifice humans on animals, or animals, in the name of development of public health, changing the way environmental problems problems are cast, and knowledge about the future is produced. So I will now turn to uh, fieldwork analysis. So the uh, Hong Kong University Department uh, of Microbiology is uh, divided into two parts, referred to as the wet lab and the dry lab. In the wet lab, in the wet lab virologists manipulate frozen pathogens in high conditions of biosecurity. Carlo Cadius recalls that since 1933, biomedical scientists and public health experts have invested considerable resources in generating and channeling a seamless flow of virus strains, not only across species, but also across countries, institutions, and disciplines. It was this controlled flow of biological matter that allowed influenza research to become independent of the seasonal occurrence of epidemic disease. So it is this flow of material that uh, allows the, the, the dry lab to be uh, constituted and, and the wet lab to, to work. In the wet lab, flu viruses are introduced in chicken embryos or ferts or monkey cells to follow their replication, particularly the entrance initiated by hemagglutinin and their release favored by neuraminidase, hence the H and N letters given to flu viruses. The wet lab is exposed to biosecurity measures just like a poultry farm because it nourishes living material in such a way that epidemics become apparent. In the dry lab, by contrast, virologists look at genetic sequences on their computers. Rather than searching for their impact on human health, they trace their mutation in the animal reservoir. Diseases are reduced to errors in coding, mismatches in replication and communication, Epidemic outbreaks are visualized as continuous shifts and catastrophic drifts. Since viruses are pieces of information that need a cell to replicate, they can be treated adequately in these two perspectives, either in a cycle of life and death or through lines of mutations. Sequences of viruses, as well as all kinds of living beings, are available on GenBank, a website constituted by the National Center for Biotechnology Information. This data bank contains more than 100 million sequences and doubles every 10 months. The dry lab allows to bypass biosecurity constraints of the wet lab. It is not necessary to collect samples in farms or markets or to ask other labs to send them since they are available as computer sequences. So the shift from wet lab to the dry lab is described by this uh, scientist as a change of status. It gives access to prestigious scientific journals such as Science or Nature, but it is also described as a shift from dirty to clean. 
I could. In general, I don't do the lab work, everything that makes your hand dirty. I work mainly on computers. But if I didn't have the staff to do the sequencing, I could do it because that's what I've done for years. Virologists displace the uncertainty from the reactions of the organism to a virus to its mutations as it circulates around the globe and across species. If collecting spent samples is like catching a wild specimen, visualizing their sequences on a screen displays them in a virtual space where they produce knowledge about future pandemics. A specific technique has been formed to give biological meanings to computer sequences, bioinformatics. Uh, Donald McKenzie, who has written an article about that, writes, Bioinformatics take a strong interest in potentiating living bodies, in opening a field of possible transformations and substitutions around them, even if itself as a material practice does not get its feet wet in living things. So in bioinformatics, life is turned into potential transformation at the level of virtual sequences by drawing correlations between one sequence and another. I quote again uh, Mackenzie. Sequence comparison is in fact the operation through which horizontal translation occurs, and hence a flattening of genetic time occurs. In a sense, reading the sequence itself turns out to be le far less important than reading the sequence alongside other sequences. So this procedure is called uh, alignment, and it is possible thanks to powerful software such as BLAST or MSA. But if correlations are proposed by the computer based on probabilities of mutations, they must be confirmed by the virologist based on biological knowledge. When two sequences are close to each other, it can be through mutations, so ATCG becomes ATCA, or deletion, and then the sequence uh, ATACAG becomes ATCG. But it may also be due to errors in sequencing. To decide which correlations to take into account and which to consider as irrelevant, virologists can use softwares providing the probability of correlations based on a given scenario. Bioinformatics relies on a bias and logic that integrates the effect of a subjective decision in the objective result. If the uncertainty of the mutation of pathogens between species is integrated in the software that calculates probabilities, it relies ultimately in the competencies of biologists who see the mutations. So there is a, a complex dialectic between seeing the sequences and uh, having an idea of the biological uh, um, entity. I quote uh, this uh, scientist, imagine you've sequenced a virus, you want to know the evolution, where it comes from. You download all these sequences from GenBank, and then you make the alignment to check which nucleotides are important. But if there's something obscure in the sequence, you just check the references and ask them, what months did you do the analysis? For influenza, there is no problem because it's only the big labs who do it. So the interesting thing here is that, here, the interesting thing here is that um, there are a, a few labs that can concentrate the information about viruses because they have the, the samples themselves. And then they can give meaning to the sequences that, are, uh, uh, that can be download, downloaded uh, on, on GeneBank. Uh, so there is a competition, a, a tension here between the values of collaboration or open access and the values of competitiveness or scale in the production of data banks. In the world of influenza, 
Robert Webster has come to prominence because he constituted the biggest biobank in St. Jude Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Webster is a real virus hunter, as he has collected samples of flu viruses on birds all over the world. Researchers in Hong Kong can benefit from their position on the sentinel post where new viruses emerge. So when they sequence a virus, they can trace it to known viruses to follow its roots. Catching a new virus becomes meaningful only in regard to the data bank on which it adds a new line. Data banks need to be connected to sentinel posts to produce knowledge about emerging viruses through visual maps in which any actuality increases uncertainty. So these visual maps are called phylogenetic trees. This uh, synthetic framework aligns sequences depending on their distances in space, time, and species. And it relies on a Darwinian hypothesis. Simulated in mutations correspond to biological kinship. So when a virus jumps from one species to another, it integrates a new set of lines. The immunity pressure of the environment can create an evolutionary bottleneck that allows this mutation to replicate. And then drawing back these lines leads to what is called the most recent common ancestor. So drawing this this tree, there is a a bet that it expresses a, a real process based on the representation of nature as trying all mutations to multiply in an optimal way. This hypothesis allows to move from the virtual to the actual, from relations to an an absolute event. Behind the probabilities of mutation, the biologists look for the causality that explains these mutations, what is called the molecular clock. And I quote, we try to get close to the real tree, that which explains genetic sequences, what we call the absolute evolutionary tree. This method has uh, an important consequence. Genetic sequences... Um, allow biologists to find emerging viruses that were not detected by the surveillance, but that are like empty cases in or empty places in the uh, phylogenetic tree. So the molecular clock displaces the time of emergence from the symptomatic present to a genetic past. Researchers at the University of Hong Kong have thus shown that The SARS virus mutated in bats in South China before being transmitted by civet cats in Guangzhou in 2003, that the H5N1 virus had taken advantage of the poultry vaccination campaign organized in Vietnam and China in 2005, that the H1N1 virus emerging in Mexican swine in 2009 had a twin virus found on Hong Kong pigs in 2004, and that the H1N1 virus causing the 1918 pandemic was already circulating in pigs in 1911. And this conclusion have a strong policy impact. A, a better surveillance of animals could have led to an earlier detection of emerging viruses. Um, so because of this political impact, um, these microbiologists have uh, uh, some tension with the Chinese authorities. The University of Hong Kong is linked to the University of Shantou in Fujian, where Hong Kong microbiologists regularly go to collect samples in poultry farms and markets. But when their publications threaten the interest of the Department of Agriculture in Beijing, their access to Shantou is cut down, and they have to stay in Hong Kong to work on the samples they have already collected. Uh, So the way for them to compensate this uh, uh, lack of access to the real viruses 
uh, is to say we're sitting on a bunch of information. Viruses are there, still unknown. Even if we don't do surveillance, we have enough information to work for five years. And another, another scientist says we are destroying China's Great Wall. Every virus sequence is a brick that comes out. Um, so the idea is that states, national states can put limits to the work of microbiologists, but these borders can virtually be crossed through the use of bioinformatics. So viruses draw the invisible lines that governments try to hide by building borders. Sentinel devices equip the border, both ontological between species and political between governments, in such a way that it can be virtually explored. A recent change in the nomenclature of flu viruses has led to erase the name of countries and provinces in favor of the position in the phylogenetic trees. Before this change of regulation, Genbeck gave the name of the province and species on which the viruses had been found. For instance, A. Guskwangdong 196H5N1 was linked with the H5N1 virus declared in Hong Kong in 1997 and considered as a Chinese precursor. But other flu viruses found in China, such as the Fujian strain that spread around Asia, or the Qinghai clade that spread in Europe, were called clade 2.3.4 and clade 2.2. So the, 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 there was a criticism on this uh, new uh, nomenclature because it, it, uh, uh, it was hiding the political knowledge in these phylogenetic trees. Um, so if the world of animal surveillance is strongly influenced by political interest and limitations, managing uncertainty at cross species trans, uh, transmission, of cross-species transmission at the potential level is a way to raise these limitations and point to global networks of surveillance. At this level, uncertainty doesn't come from the behaviors of human communities, considered as risk factor, but from the plural lines of viral mutations on which humans' behavior only exert an evolutionary pressure. Virologists have been successful in creating a virtual space where uncertainty is displaced from the lethality of viruses when they cross species borders to the times and lines of mutation. This uncertainty comes from the equipment of animals through sentinel devices, the constitution of a massive and continuous web of surveillance that allows to track virus mutations. So we can argue that virologists have the same relation with virus hunters as shamans with animal hunters. They create a space of virtual relations in which they can anticipate actual relations between humans and animals by acting on invisible, invisible entities situated between humans and animals. If this hypothesis is relevant, it could describe the work of another group that reacted to avian influenza. Bird watchers. While virologists face the uncertainty of the mutations of bird flu viruses when they cross political borders between China and Hong Kong, bird watchers face the uncertainty of viruses when they cross ontological frontiers between wild and domestic birds. So, what does the relation of bird watchers to hunters reveal about their practice of uncertainty? In Hong Kong, bird watchers have been allied with virologists to produce data about the risk of avian influenza. By looking at this alliance, I will show how it has transformed risk management through the use of sentinel devices. 
So the Hong Kong Birdwatching Society was founded in 1957 by British officers who wanted to raise a list of the bird species on the territory to engage for their conservation. It is estimated that 400 bird species can be observed in Hong Kong due to its position on the migratory flyways between north and south of East Asia. Following a tradition of Western naturalists in China, it also developed a distinctive mode when Hong Kong was recovered by China in 1997. As the number of Chinese members increased to 1,000, there was a raising involvement in teaching nature conservation on the other side of the border. So the Hong Kong Birdwatching Society, along with its Taiwanese counterpart, considered itself as a sentinel of nature conservation in the Chinese space. This position was actively defended in the relation with the Hong Kong government after 1997. The most important uh, bird reserve in Hong Kong, situated in the wetland of Maipo, at the mouth of the Pearl River Delta, was run by the World Wildlife Fund, but owned by the government. When the government decided to close the Maipo Reserve for three weeks, every time a wild bird was found with H5N1 in a three-kilometer zone around the reserve, birdwatchers decided to become experts in avian flu risk management. So in 2007, they organized a press conference um, with Hong Kong University microbiologists to show that no H5N1 had been found around the bird market of Hong Kong, <coughs> which they explained by the release of birds for spiritual purposes. Birds stuck into cages were released in parks close to the market, and the stress conditions under which they had been carried made them susceptible to infectious disease. <coughs> the argument of the Hong Kong Birdwatching Society was that the Hong Kong government closed the Maipo Reserve, where few people were going, to avoid closing Mongkok bird market that had a more important economic impact. So this is the map of the Hong Kong territory. <coughs> and you see that the Maipo Reserve... Um, is it working? The Maipo Reserve is situated uh, on the mouth of the Pearl River Delta. Uh, and this is the place where migratory birds are supposed to cross the border. Uh, but the Mong Kok bird market is situated in the heart of Kowloon, which is the densest area of Hong Kong. Uh, and so it's really the idea of the epicenter, and there's, there's a, a movement to displace the focus from the border to the center, and to say this is the highest place for risk. <coughs> uh, so the, the vice director of the Hong Kong Birdwatching Society says... Maipo is probably the most tested place in the world for wild birds. We've been collecting records of birds for 50 years in Hong Kong. This gives us an authority that nobody can question on birds because the Hong Kong Birdwatching Society was started by English birdwatchers who had this amateur birdwatching model. You write down the birds that you see and you submit <coughs> your records to the society at the end of the year and these records are available for anybody who wants to use them. So this, is, uh, this was interesting for me uh, because it really connected the practice of birdwatchers to collectors uh, and uh, the idea of surveillance to an older idea of uh, collecting knowledge and, and making uh, images out of this knowledge. So I, 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 I tried to uh, compare 
bird watchers and uh, bird sellers as two types of collectors. Bird watchers have distinguished their practices from those of hunters who collect specimens. They refrain from catching birds and they content themselves with uh, observing. So we can contrast uh, three kinds of practices among amateurs of wild birds in Hong Kong. Bird collectors, uh, and this is this slide. Bird collectors think about the cage in which they conserve the bird. They transport it in the city with a veil so that the bird is not disturbed by the noises of the city. And they spend time listening to their songs in the market and comparing it with others as an indicator of bird's health. So they have constituted the bird market as an urban ecosystem, but they, have, they are also the victims of biosecurity measures imposed to the market, and this market is threatened to be closed. Then there are the Buddhists who buy birds to release them, uh, who consider bird markets as places of suffering. They think that releasing a bird increases the merits of humans, and they consider that avian flu is a sign of the mistreatment of birds in market. But they contribute to the production of avian flu by releasing birds in improper environment, and some add by catching the birds who have just been released to recycle them in the market and selling them again. Birdwatchers have therefore proposed to release birds they capture from illegal trade in suitable environment, and they even publish booklets where they teach amateurs where and how to release animals properly. So we have here an interesting controversy uh, between different views of what is a sick bird, showing the uncertainties on pathogens circulating from birds to humans. Do pathogens come from the mistreatment of birds by humans so that a careful attention to their movements and needs would be enough to cure them, as bird collectors and Buddhists tend to think? Or is it necessary to have an ecosystemic perspective in which lethal pathogens emerge when the distance between species is too large. For bird collectors, birds are souls that suffer from diseases. For bird watchers, birds are sentinels that send signals on environmental threats. So it's interesting to see the shift between souls to sentinel in connecting uh, the interiority of the bird to its physical appearance. There is a fundamental uncertainty in the sentence, birds are sick with flu that is potentially human. Is this flu transmissible? And through which birds? Birdwatchers have answered this question by defining bird health as a potentiality in ecosystem. So this knowledge about uh, ecosystem is particularly built through maps. When they issued the press conference in 2007, the Hong Kong Birdwatching Society showed a map of the cases of H5N1, where it was clear that most were found around Mongkok. This map displays the focus of avian flu from the borders, where viruses are supposed to arrive through wild birds, to the center of the territory. Mongkok was the place where SARS was transmitted by a physician who had treated patients in Guangzhou in 2003. So if Mongkok is a place of risk management, Hong Kong borders are sites of anticipation of coming threats. Most places where bird watchers count biodiversity are situated at the border, Maipo, Long Valley, 
close to Shenzhen, um, which is an agricultural site where the Hong Kong Birdwatching Society succeeded to stop a railway construction project by showing the presence of uh, rare endemic species, or Tap Mucho Island, uh, which is <coughs> on the north, um, where the Hong Kong Birdwatching Society monitors terns threatened by fishermen's activities. <coughs> All these sites configure an, what Tim Choi has called an ecology of endangerment. <coughs> Knowledge about uh, birds' biodiversity is also produced by uh, the sharing of pictures. The presence of a new species is an uncertain event since it is a singular encounter. So pictures allow us to transform it into a record and share it with other birdwatchers. Through the website, other birdwatchers can come to see the rare species and confirm its presence. But the use of pictures is controversial because of the arrival of new birdwatchers who practice it as a leisure and as a way to show their wealth through expensive material. Uh, so this is a, a, a chart that has been built of uh, the uh, migratory birds, and this is by a bird watcher who, who goes uh, on an island in the north, in the south of Hong Kong, uh, where you can see uh, seabirds coming from China. Uh, and these are quotes on, on the, uh, and this is a quote from him uh, on, on what he sees when he builds these this charts. Uh, I am a mathematician, I like figures, I see things in figures. And this is the, the, the bird watcher who uh, uh, is the first to see the rare species on this island and, and can uh, call others to uh, come to this island through uh, the, the website uh, of the birdwatching society. And so this, uh, this bird watcher who builds um, charts uh, is critical of the use of pictures because pictures is not linked to a particular location. So there is a, there is, there is a, a, a tension between um, uh, serious bird watchers and photographers in the, the images uh, of birds uh, shared in the community. Um, so I was interested in this controversy on uh, bird pictures uh, because it uh, recapula recapitulates the historical tendency by which birdwatchers separated themselves from hunters. Photographers are accused of being more interested by the catch than by the encounter with the bird. However, the Hong Kong Birdwatching Society has also used photographs as indicators of environmental degradation, asking their members to send pictures of local birds to the government for the protection of Long Valley from new construction projects or pictures of degraded, degraded sites to enforce uh, environmental laws. The controversy on pictures among bird watchers can thus be compared to the discussions among virologists on phylogenetic trees or the names of viruses. These are the moments when the uncertainty of the encounter with sick birds is displaced in a site where it produces visibility. The uncertainty bounces back in the use of technologies that allow to make threat visible. How to use phylogenetic trees and bird photographs so that the encounter with threatened or threatening birds becomes an actual event. This is a problem for a politics of sentinel devices. 
how to build devices that send early warning signals in such a way that the large amount of data leads to a significant uh, mobilization. So um, I have showed that uh, virologists and bird watchers, when they follow viruses or threatened birds in their ecosystems, produce knowledge about events that have not yet been detected but that become meaningful through the use of, sand, of devices such as phylogenetic trees or bird photographs, thus raising uh, public awareness on potential threats. They open a virtual space of communication with animals through the use of pathogens as measures of the distances between species. Sentinel devices rely therefore on another concept of uncertainty than other techniques of preparedness or epidemics. While simulation and stockpiling create fictions out of an actual event, sentinel devices detect events at a virtual stage where they still need to produce a mobilization. It is therefore difficult to criticize a sentinel device for detecting events that have not yet proved to be threats, as the role of sentinel devices is to produce more knowledge than what is actually needed for the mitigation of known threats. Sentinel devices open a space of reflection from biosecurity, securing borders, to biodiversity. The management of risk of pathogens crossing species borders entails a, a larger map of mutations and transformation occurring between species. So a policy of sentinel devices doesn't seek to restore borders that have been crossed between humans and animals, but is attentive to the multiplicity of relations between them. So in the end of this paper, I wanted to add uh, uh, a last part on the museum since it adds a new object to my reflection on uh, biosecurity. Um, so I wanted to add a, a few slides on the museum as a sentinel device. Um, and of course, it's a challenge for me to consider the, the Musée du Cabernet as a, as a fieldwork uh, because I, I, I do a kind of real participant observation. Uh, but I was very happy when I uh, entered the museum to see that there is this space uh, of, uh, of this borderland uh, between the visitor and the museum, which is a space with ducks, uh, and, and ducks are separated uh, uh, by a border, but they also come close to, to, the, to the museum. So the museum is actually a very organic space. You have plants on the walls, uh, you uh, have ducks in the garden. And I, I try to think about how the museum can be considered a, as a sentinel device, how uh, this framework of biosecurity uh, can shed light on the practices of the curators I work with. And one of the measures that uh, uh, attracted my attention uh, was uh, measures to detect uh, the sound of uh, insects, uh, fleas. Uh, so there is a map of the museum spaces with uh, the locations where fleas uh, uh, actually uh, produce sound and uh, there are techniques to measure the sounds of fleas uh, to increase the sound uh, and measure their movement. And the space where uh, the, the fleas are most frequent uh, is the, the tower 
uh, that, is, uh, that, that welcomes the visitor at the entrance of the museum, uh, uh, which is the, very close to the cloakroom. So the, the, they, they have discovered that the fleas come from the, uh, from the, the, the clothes uh, of visitors and then enter the tower, which is the, which is the, the only visible reserve uh, because it contains uh, musical uh, instruments. So it's a kind of sentinel devices in the sense that it's the first line of uh, uh, relation between visitors and the objects. And a lot of the uh, reflection that I want to propose is to consider objects as living beings uh, in the sense that their uh, cultural life, their biography, their trajectory can also be linked to a biological life because particularly ethnographic objects contain uh, mater organic material uh, skin, feathers, uh, and so this presence of insects in, in, in the objects is a first sign uh, for the visitors to think about uh, objects as, as living beings. But then, if you uh, want to know more about the reserves of the museum, uh, most of them are dug uh, uh, in the underground, the, the museum. And uh, the access to these reserves is, is very uh, difficult. Um, even the curators themselves don't have access to these reserves. Uh, and there is a, a room uh, that all objects must pass by uh, that uh, uh, kills all living uh, beings in the objects, which is called a room for anoxia. So it, it uh, extracts the oxygen out of the uh, atmosphere. And... Um, and so this, this looks like a, a biosecurity measures in the sense that all objects have to pass through this door uh, and, um, uh, and, and uh, in, in the context of a, a large circulation of objects in the, uh, in, in the ex exhibitions uh, that are, uh, for which the museum lends uh, its objects, uh, this uh, threshold uh, of the room of anoxia as a very important uh, role. Um, now, an, another uh, important uh, thing about uh, the, so th this can be considered as a, as a as a as an internal sentinel in the sense that it's the it's the place where the uh, the museum considered as a, as a lab uh, controls the, uh, the the entrance of of, uh, of the objects as living beings. Uh, now, the, the, the other um, uh, technique that I, I, I thought to apply was this idea of simulation, and I've not talked about it in, the, in, in this uh, presentation, but it's these uh, exercises that are uh, made to prepare for uh, catastrophes. And the catastrophe for which the Musée de Cabanli is preparing is the annual flood of the River Seine, because the museum is close to the river, and so... Uh, there has been a, um, a, a construction with clay uh, that, uh, that allows uh, the, the, the water to uh, enter uh, the surrounding of the museum without entering uh, the, the reserve themselves. And uh, there are regular exercises of evacuation of the objects uh, during which the objects are taken in the reserves and exported, evacuated, on, on the top part of the museum. Um, and um, so it's, it's interesting to think of these uh, exercises as 
making visible all the work of storage and stockpiling that is the, the, the condition of the, uh, of, of the life of the, of the museum. Because the, the, uh, well, this exercise was only for um, books and another exercise for objects. But that's the moment when the, the, the storage underground is made visible uh, uh, at, the, at the higher level of the, of the building. So the, the, the consideration uh, I, I, I want to propose is that uh, the, 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 the life of, of these objects uh, is, uh, is given value uh, by um, being submitted to measures that uh, control uh, the, the, the flow of, of objects in the museum and the, the more objects circulate in the world of uh, exhibitions uh, uh, the, the more they are uh, submitted to uh, strict measures uh, to uh, secure uh, their presence in the storage and uh, in the same way as, as I considered sentinel devices as a way to build meaningful images of relations between humans and non-humans I want now to extend this uh, analysis uh, to uh, uh, ethnographic objects as uh, 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 building relations between humans and, and non-humans or between uh, visible and invisible entities at the material level uh, of uh, uh, their living condition. And I close with the bird. Thank you for your attention.